Thank you. Uh, I remember I was last here 22 years ago last month. And it was, believe it or not, it was a gloriously sunny, bright day. Well done for you, coming out on a Dennis day like this. I, uh, I straight after the service, my wife and I are zipping down to the West Country. My eldest son and his wife and kids have bought a new home just north of Plymouth. And weeks ago, we, uh, we offered to go down and do some DIY and painting without checking with the Met Office first. We volunteered, so we'll be heading down. Um, it is far worse in the West Country than we've had it here, much worse. So I'm, uh, with fear and intrepidation, we'll be heading there. I, I realized when I was looking at the weather this morning that actually it does relate to what I'm going to be saying today. I'm going to be talking about that journey into Christ-likeness, the sanctification that God is calling all of us to enter into, a walk into holiness to be more like His Son so that we become more like the message we proclaim. But I realize we don't all start from the same place. Some of you may consider yourself spiritually coming from the West Country. You maybe didn't grow up in a Christian home. For many of the calls into a deeper walk with Christ is tough for you. It doesn't come naturally. You didn't grow up with it. For some of you, uh, the call into Christ-likeness you grew up in spiritual southeast, where it wasn't so bad. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. And so I want to be sensitive to that this morning. Of course, I'm going to say the Lord is wanting us to go deeper with him, but I realize that in saying that, we have to realize each one of us comes from a slightly different place and has a slightly different experience in trying to move into growing Christ-likeness. Having said this, let me just pause with a word of prayer and ask God to guide us. Father, we really do want to be shaped by your word. We choose again today to be free samples of Jesus to everyone who would want to know whether God really is good. Would you continue to reshape us today always to your glory? Amen. Now, if this works, much like... Ah, it does. We have the same one in our church. Our Lord has a passion to see us grow up and become more like His Son. It's called sanctification. It's called becoming more like the message we proclaim. But I have to confess to you that this has taken me many years to realize. You see, I was sold a gospel that was very different. It was more a kind of an in-out message. And once you got in, that was the big issue. From then on, you just had to be nice until Jesus returned. Um, not only was that an incredibly shrunken definition of the gospel, it also was strangely boring. As a young Christian, I wondered to myself, is that all there is to it? It wasn't until I had an opportunity to work with John Stott that I discovered that actually the gospel is more interesting, more exhilarating, more important when God calls us into the kingdom. This is what I learned. God has a mission into this world. He gave himself the mission. It's not the church's mission. It's not our mission. It's God's mission because he insists on reversing the effects of the fall on his creation, which he wants to return to the pristine state it was in before our ancestors and we decided to rebel against him. And God has created a church for himself to get the mission done. And so he calls people out in order to get that mission done. 
And then he starts to make us look and sound and behave more like the message we proclaim. And of course, you and I know that that message is all about Jesus. And so growing in Christ-likeness becomes totally logical once you enter into the kingdom. It also, fortunately, helps us to stop making our lives an obstacle to the message we're proclaiming. It hopefully starts to make our lives look more like the message we proclaim. But also, Christianity, I discovered, is more like an apprenticeship and less like a lesson on moral living or correct doctrine. As an apprenticeship, you realize that you're actually starting to take on habits of the heart that start to shape the way you are and the way you behave. One of those habits that have helped the saints for millennia now is a simple habit of thankfulness. But before we get into that, let's listen to our Lord as he tells us and reminds us that the essence of the Christian life is remaining in relationship with him. For that's the only way we're going to be fruitful. Allow me to give you a sense of the context that we're talking about here in chapter 15. This is a three-dimensional model of the city, ancient city of Jerusalem. As you see, it's built on Mount Zion. On the left there, looking eastwards to the Mount of Olives, and in between is the Kidron Valley. Uh, John is writing a week that Jews would call Passover, that we now call the start of Easter. Um, and during the Passover, tens of thousands of Jews from all over the empire would descend upon Jerusalem. And at the same time, thousands of Roman soldiers would do the same because Romans knew one thing about Jews. They didn't believe they should be ruled by Gentiles, and they were a rebellious lot. So when you look at this model, note that there are the more expensive housing at the top of the mountain. It's a walled city. Top right-hand corner is the temple. The more expensive housing is there at the top. Caiaphas's residence, the high priest at number three. Four and six is where Pilate's residence would be. Number five is the palace, originally started by David. By this time, it was the Herod, the Tetrarch, who was there. If you ever wondered in 2 Samuel chapter 11 how it was that David went to his balcony and looked out and saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop, know that Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite, a mere soldier. He was in the cheap seats down below. David obviously could see her quite easily. At the end of chapter 14, our Lord has had his last supper with his disciples. With tens of thousands of Jews descending on Jerusalem, this was a time to make good money, especially if you had a large house at the top of the hill there. So you often rented out the upper room to, to uh, pilgrims who were coming through to celebrate the Passover. We know in chapter 14, they've just completed the last supper, as we now call it, and they probably took firebrand torches and started to walk down the hill. Imagine that our Lord was probably rented accommodation somewhere around number three, around Caiaphas's residence. They would have walked down the hill, past the Pool of Siloam, out the water gate, and then turned left into the Kidron Valley, a valley that was full of vineyards. And chapter 15 is probably spoken somewhere around number two, firebrand torches surrounded by vines, 
And the Lord says what he says. After this, we know that he was take, he, they walked to the Garden of Gethsemane. Early Friday morning, he would be arrested, taken back through the Kidron Valley, right through the Watergate, up to Caiaphas' residence at number three. Caiaphas, realizing here's a chance to get rid of a, of a pain in the neck who caused him so much trouble, actually affected his business because he overturned the good business he had in the temple. As we know, overturned the money changers' ta tables. But no Jew, Jewish leader, had the right to execute anyone. So they had to send him to Pilate's residence at number four. Pilate, realizing that this man was a Galilean and the Tetrarch of Galilee was in town for the Passover, sent him to the palace at number five. Herod, realizing this was a political hot potato, sent him immediately back to Pilate, who decided there was nothing more he could do. So he washed his hands, says, I'm... I'm innocent of this man's blood. At that point, the Roman soldiers would have taken him past the palace at number five, through the court of the Gentiles of the temple there to number seven, the, uh, the fortress of Antonia, named after the great Roman general Mark Antony. They built their fortress slightly higher than the walls of the temple. Why? Because they knew Gentiles were not allowed in there, but they also knew Jews were troublemakers, so they wanted to be able to observe what was going on in the temple. We know at number seven our Lord was beaten, crown of thorns placed upon his head, taken out through the north gate to Golgotha, where he was crucified, a barbaric form of punishment that Romans reserved for non-Roman citizens. And he was crucified as thousands of criminals had been crucified before him. But now at number two, our Lord, in the midst of those vineyards, says to his disciples, I am the true vine. This is going to be the last I am statement that John records in his gospel. And it would be a particularly surprising one. It should surprise no one here that with a mind as sharp and as agile as our Lord's that he would latch on to the image of the vine as the essential nature of relationship with him. He was, after all, surrounded by the vineyards. When Jesus makes this bold claim to be the true vine, his disciples would have swallowed particularly hard because they're thinking that the true vine is actually Israel. That is an Old Testament truth, but Jesus is now saying, actually, it's me. And men and women must decide whether they wish to be attached to me or not. Living life or living death, that is the gospel choice. You see, Jesus now extends. He doesn't replace. He extends the true Israel to include all nations. An Old Testament prophecy or an Old Testament picture is now being fulfilled. Now Jesus said the image of the vine that was once Israel was just a shadow of the one who is to come, and now he has arrived. Jesus is the one. He is the one who is obedient. He is the one who produces fruit through us, his branches, always to the glory of the Father. You see, without this vine image, our relationship, our discipleship could sound like a mechanical process of certain obedience to certain doctrine and implementing certain ethics. But now we know it's on a much deeper foundation. Now we know it's about a relationship of dependency, fruitfulness, pruning, a deep relationship of personal intimacy, as Jesus had spoken about in the previous chapter, chapter 14, verse 20, when he said, you are in me and I am in you. 
Well, if that's the case in verse 1, notice that it becomes totally logical for Jesus now to introduce the Father as the gardener, the vine dresser, who lops off and prunes. In verse 1, he says, the Father cuts off those who are unfruitful. The Father takes off dead wood in order to give fruitful branches a better opportunity to provide fruit. The picture is simply there to remind us that people who have some claim upon, Christ, uh, upon Christianity must by nature be fruit bearers. And if they are not, then the Father removes them in order to give more air, more juice to the ones who are producing fruit. And on this night, Thursday night, as Jesus is saying this, we know from the rest of the Gospels that Judas Iscariot has just become the perfect example of dead wood. People with some degree of association with Jesus and his church, but who fail to, to sort of bear the, the fruit of perseverance, testify to themselves and to everyone around them that the life pulsating life of Jesus never was pulsating through their veins anyway. But secondly, notice this. The Father even prunes those who are fruitful in order to obtain even more fruit from them. I'm going to tell you this morning that his purposes are always loving, but that does not mean that they are pain-free. Whatever it takes to prune, the Father may well choose for us in order to make us more like his Son. You see, that might be exactly what the writer to the Hebrews was thinking of, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. He said that God disciplines us for our own good. And what is the good that the writer to the Hebrews is thinking of in chapter 11 and 12 of Hebrews? It's that we might grow up and become more like Christ. You see, the Father is the gardener, and Jesus is asking us to notice that he's standing there with pruning shears in his hands. Things that we once held as very dear to us, the Father may take them off in order that we might bear more fruit. Things that we thought were great gain in the journey of life, we may look back later on and realize actually they were slowing us down, and that's why the Father got rid of them. But you see, it's going to take this quite unnatural realization, unnatural for us human beings at least, that we're just not the ultimate masters of our own lives. Humility on the journey into Christ-likeness is essential as we bow to the often painful realization that the Spirit is teaching us you're just not in full control of your life. We need to humbly hand over the reins of our lives to the one who is. I was listening to a podcast this week where they had, they had created a uh, survey and they realized the analysis of it was simply this. The people think they control a whole lot in life, but actually when you analyze their lives, they're about 15 to 18% in control of what they think they're in control of. The survey was done to try and work out why depression is rising in our nation. And depression often comes when you realize you're out of control. I have discovered that older people who've journeyed with the Lord for a long period of time realize that humility allows us to bow to those often 
unchosen ways of our Lord as he reshapes us into the image of his Son. I heard an elderly saint talk to a young girl of about 10 years old. This young girl, as, as young people are often able to do, asked one of those questions that you think, wow, I wish I'd thought of that. They just come out with them. And she went up to this elderly uh, gentleman and said, um, what are humble people like? What are they like? This elderly saint got down to her level and he said, well, um, in my experience, humble people are learning to tell the truth about themselves to three audiences. They tell the truth about themselves to other people who never knew and are amazed when they hear it. They tell the truth about themselves to the one audience who already knew, but simply smiles when they finally realize it. And they tell the truth about themselves to the one audience that doesn't want to hear it themselves. I realized that this elderly saint had gone through a lot of the pruning process. And in that process, he had refined a gift, the ability to explain deep theological issues. They write tomes about what humility is about. He could say it in a way that even a child could understand. Friends, the pruning process, even when it's painful, reminds us to stay connected, connected at all times, and humbly admitting that life without Christ is no life at all. So let's notice this in verse 4. Jesus says that remaining is the only way to be fruitful. You see, no branch has life in and of itself. You recall in the previous chapter, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, the only way to life is to step through Jesus, the very personification of truth himself. You see, real Christian growth is not like the growing of crystals. Crystals grow, but that is actually dead growth. Large single crystals may well grow in a saline solution. Recall for me, if you would, if you're anything like me, you probably were given in your high school chemistry laboratories a glass beaker, and you were told to mix up a solution, some saline, 10 to 30%. My solution turned blue in the, in the glass beaker. I was told to put a string into the solution and then stick it on the shelf of the chemistry lab. And I watched over the weeks as crystals started to grow up the string. That is growth, you see. But it is, in fact, dead growth. Christians who try to imitate life with Christ without that vital, personal relationship with the source of life may well discover that they are merely imitating something in other people that they do not possess themselves. You see, this is why regeneration, new birth, the giving of the Spirit is such a big issue in the New Testament. You see, Old Testament saints long for God to do something to help them to obey. As Jeremiah said, take out this heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. But the Father could not answer that prayer until Jesus had finally come to wipe the slate clean with the ultimate and final sacrifice. Now, at long last, the Spirit can be poured upon all of God's people, who is, of course, the one who helps us to obey. 
as Jesus will explain in verses 9 to 11. Friends, we need to be actively involved in this relationship that we have with our Lord. And the saints have discovered that taking on certain spiritual disciplines, like thankfulness, is a helpful way to be reshaped by the word that we have read and understood. And growing Christ-likeness is the big issue that the Spirit is bringing into every church, making us more like the message we proclaim. Let's watch Jesus as he changes the picture in verses 5 to 8, introducing us as the branches. Here you'll notice that the pruning gardener quietly disappears as he, the, he focuses on the big issue, remain in relationship with him. The fruit is the product of this persevering <coughs> dependence on the vine. That is what drives everything about the believer's life and work. You see, fruit-bearing displays Jesus' life through us. You should be able to look at fruit and say, I know exactly which plant that comes from. And when I see fruit, I notice that the pulsating juice of the, the vine is going through the branches. Wonderful. It's alive. But of course, fruit-bearing is always done to bring the Father more glory. And if we need any encouragement on that journey, it's surely there in verse 7, a growing confidence in our prayer life. You see, with the time and the nurturing of this foundational relationship, we start to discover that actually this deep relational union with Christ actually does something. A believer who knows Jesus, and I'm talking personal knowledge now, starts to pray in ways that gradually conform to the Father's will. We start to discover that our prayers, wonderfully, are starting to synchronize with what the Father is doing in this world. You see, the confident prayer life is not about the remarkable ability to make loud demands to which some celestial bellboy comes running saying, how can I lift your pain, your burdens? How can I make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, and preferably now, Lord? No, not at all. To pray in Jesus' name is not a magic formula for success. Rather, it is a reminder to the one who is praying that the disciple's life is driven and inspired by the daily life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a life may soon discover that we actually start to pray God's prayers after him. And that brings a quiet confidence. Maybe that's what John was thinking later on when he wrote his first letter. 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he wrote these words, We are certain that God will hear our prayers when we ask for what pleases him. So here's my confession this morning. I find that my prayer life needs the constant reminder that high-speed 21st century living does nothing to help me to remain connected. Slowing down and noticing what God is doing activates my prayer life. But how do we slow down and see what God is doing all around us? Well, here's what I learned from a great saint who'd walked with the Lord for many decades. She said that she'd actually learned to slow down because she had learned the habit of gratitude for small things. The habit of gratitude for small things. She said that as a child, she had been visiting her grandparents and her grandfather had come in to the, to the lobby of their bungalow and he didn't see his granddaughter standing behind him. 
and he started to hang up his coat. And he started to thank Jesus for the hook. Now, I have to be honest with you, I was puzzled. And she said she was puzzled as well. And behind him, she said, Grandad, what are you doing? And of course, he got the shock of his life to discover her standing there. And he said, this is going to sound very strange. But you see, I'm looking for hooks in life on which to hang my gratitude. I'm looking for hooks in life on which to hang my gratitude. That great saint said that she'd copied her grandfather since the days of her youth. And in the process of giving thanks, she realized that she had to slow down and notice what God was doing in her life. And that activated her prayer life. That brought her closer to the Lord. Well, we've heard Jesus paint the picture of him as the vine, the Father as the gardener, us as the branches. Now let's listen to him as he unpacks what that means in verses 9 to 11. As the Father has loved the Son since before time began, with a deep intensity unmatched by any other love in the world, so we will experience that same love. That's the amazing promise unveiled for us in verse 9. But clearly, as intense as that love is, and as amazing as it is that the Father and Son would pour such gracious, undeserved love out on us, the continued enjoyment of that degree of love does depend to some extent on how we respond to that love. In other words, if we wish to remain in the love of God, we should do so in the same way Jesus says he remains in the love of the Father. Obedience, in verse 10. Now, of course, that doesn't mean it's either perfect obedience or total rejection, but it does mean that the standard of our obedience has just become Jesus. And you'll notice the level to which we repent will probably tell us just how badly we really want to walk as Jesus walked. But just in case obedience sounds like this gray and joyless grinding out of what is dutifully required of us, Jesus actually says in verse 11 that obedience is the ground of his own joy. You see, joy isn't a package that is offloaded onto the saint as you walk into the kingdom, but rather it's something you experience on the way as you learn the joy of obedience. It's amazing power to remove those guilt feelings. It's ability to give us a sense of purpose each and every morning. It's amazing skill at connecting us to a story much bigger than our own, far more interesting than our own. In chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus said this relationship is going to deliver peace. Now in chapter 15, he says it's going to deliver joy. You see, joy is just peace being expressed. And peace is joy coming to rest. Joy is peace being expressed, and peace is joy coming to rest. And the pruning process allows people to closely make that connection as they journey into growing Christ-likeness. Someone once said this, sometimes I just look up, smile and say, I know that was you, God. Thanks. You see, thankfulness requires us to stop, turn around and notice in this world what God is doing each and every day. You see, so often people forget the experiential dimension to the Christian life. Friends, Christianity can never be reduced to merely thinking the right thoughts. Thinkers in the church, be careful. 
And you can't reduce Christianity to really to merely doing the right actions. Activists in the church, beware. You see, Christianity, according to our Lord, has a much deeper sense of a loving relationship, a mystical union, a supernatural connection to the most profound relationship any human being could ever enjoy. Jesus is the source of all subsequent fruit-bearing, and that cannot be easily quantified by correct doctrine or correct ethics, although surely both our doctrine and our ethics will become ever more corrected as we journey into Christ-likeness. Because the authentic Christian life is the life of an apprentice. Someone who is learning from those who have experienced the pruning process. Well, you won't be surprised if after this our Lord was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken back through the Kidron Valley to the high priest Caiaphas, to Pilate, to Herod, and then ultimately taken through the court of the Gentiles to the fortress of Antonia where he was whipped and then killed on Golgotha. And yet our Lord knew on Thursday night, early Friday morning, that the next day was going to be a radical, going to introduce us to a radical new way to be human. Just think what would happen if the people of Milford Baptist Church became people who valued all generations in the church simply because we value discipleship. We long to see each other grow in Christ-likeness, becoming ever more like the message we proclaim. I think we'd be people who slowed down and noticed what God was doing in our communal life. We learn to be ever more thankful. I want to get very practical with you, if I may. Um, what does the habit of thankfulness actually look like? What does it really do? Why is it such a big deal? Here is this present moment. Whatever you think the present moment is, maybe just these few minutes, maybe just this hour or this day. In the 21st century, it's pretty small and getting smaller the faster we move and our technology moves us. Here's the beginning of life. Here's the middle of life. And here is the end of life, stage one and the beginning of stage two. We tell our young people that when they start out, get up into the future. The future is where the action is. That's where you want to be. Fill your CV with as much as you can. Duke of Edinburgh Awards if you can. Volunteer for that. Get that degree. Go for that experience. Now, of course, the present is not very big, and young people soon realize there isn't much time to give thanks. Yeah, great, wonderful, keep going, keep going, keep going. And the problem is that they discover, by the time they become middle-aged, that the present isn't getting any wider. And they look back and they see half of life is done, and they haven't even achieved half their goals and objectives, and they've only got half of it left. And they start to panic. And they pretend to be much younger than they really are. And it's so embarrassing to watch them. And you wish they would just be their age. And of course, they ultimately have to be, because we're all on a treadmill that's constantly moving, whether we like it or not, heading us in this direction. And eventually, we do make it somewhere here. And all too often, the saints give up. They realize this present moment is not getting any wider. 
And so they turn around and they start looking into the past. And they wonder, I didn't even achieve half of what I expected to achieve. Could anyone have taught us a better way to live? And this is what the saints have discovered over the millennia, is the beautiful gift of thankfulness. You see, thankfulness, wherever you are on this journey of life, starts to open out this present moment. You see, to be thankful, you have to stop turn around and notice what God is doing. Do you remember when Jesus healed those ten people with leprosy? He was so disappointed, you could hear it in his voice, that just one person stopped, turned around and gave thanks to God. You see, thankfulness allows us to push the past into the past. It's a place where I was forgiven. The future goes to the future. Only God knows what that is. This is the only moment, folks, that is guaranteed to you and me. If your heart is still beating, this is all that's guaranteed to you. I could die and then on my 15-minute trip back to Normandy today. God is simply saying, this is your moment. Are you alive to what I'm doing in your life now? Not what I might do, not what I once did. What am I doing now? Take a bath every so often instead of one of those fast-moving showers. It requires you to stop and think. Why not go next door and help your neighbor to watch the sun go down? Not to monitor its colors, but just to enjoy it. The beautiful canvas on which our Lord paints every single day. Go for a walk in the woods by yourself. Not to identify the birds and count how many there are, just to walk through the woods and realize you are part of this magnificent creation that God is going to restore back to the way it's supposed to be. It is not currently the way it's supposed to be. You know, Dostoevsky, the great Russian Christian, was asked, of all of the creatures on God's planet, how would you describe the human being? And Dostoevsky said, I describe the human being with just two words. The ungrateful biped. The ungrateful biped. Friends, we don't have to accept that label anymore. You and I can say, no, we are going to take thankfulness seriously because we take discipleship seriously. Because we want to know what God is calling us to do each and every day. Amen? Amen. Bless you.